Welcome to Episode 6 of Advocacy in Court. You've said goodbye for now to the witness whom you interviewed in preparation for hearing in the last episode. Their statement is being turned into a printed form and or you've sent them an audio file so they can check the printed version and or the audio file to make sure that they've said everything that they need to tell you. So while they're doing that work, we can turn our attention to your making of a chronology, your use of demonstrative aids, and what's wrong with using someone else's witness statement, that is, a witness statement taken by somebody other than you. Turning first to the chronology. After you've seen a witness, you either start a chronology that you'll use throughout the case, or you add to one that you started earlier, perhaps with an earlier interview. You are always looking for gaps in that timeline. Where you find them, you then ask yourself, who can I get to plug that hole? And how do I get them to do so? A chronology is a fundamental document. It's something that you must put together during your preparation and you must have it with you during the hearing. It's something that you'll use both when taking evidence from your own witnesses and when cross-examining any other party's witness. A chronology is so basic that you may want to share it with the fact finder as a demonstrative aid. It may be something that you wish to refer to and hand up during an opening statement to the court or tribunal. Once a witness that you've interviewed comes back to you, having checked their statement, and you having checked the chronology, then you need to ask yourself whether you need to get any more information from the witness. Do you need to have another chat with them? Not necessarily face-to-face. You can use AVL, or you can use the phone. You can use email with some questions and comments. But apart from the filling out of any gaps or extra detail with respect to any particular witness, you'll always also be asking yourself, for this case, are there any diagrams, photos, maps, models that will help to make our case clearer and easier to develop? If there are such demonstrative aids, then from whom and how soon and at what cost can we obtain it or them? Now, whether you're using one or many such demonstrative aids, you must, from the outset, pay attention to this issue. How will you authenticate any such visual aid as both accurate and admissible? 
Those tasks having been addressed, let's at long last use the Jack and Jill rhyme to show the limitations of a witness statement that's been given to you, but which is not the result of your interview with that witness. It was prepared by someone else. Because it was prepared by someone else, you don't know what was in their mind when they conducted the interview, nor do you know their skill level. And most dangerously for you, you don't know how much their written version of the interview has closed off your mental capacity to see the real whole as distinct from a part of that whole. The familiar nursery rhyme provides us with a good example to fill out these comments. No doubt you'll recall that the rhyme goes, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. When I have asked you several times to go and have a look at some videos of people telling that old rhyme, what I was doing was getting you to look at third-party interpretations of that rhyme. So now consider how much the rhyme does not tell us. For example, what age is Jack? What age is Jill? Why were they together? By what means did they go up the hill? Did they walk? Did they have some sort of machine to take them up there? Were they carried? What indeed is meant by a hill? Is it what everybody would call a hill? Or is it what some people would call a mountain? Did they go up the hill in daylight or in darkness? If they went in darkness, how could they see their way? What was the weather like when they went up the hill? From where would they get the water? Notice that the words of the rhyme do not mention any well. Did they take a pail or was it already where they were going? If they did take a pail, who carried it? Was it a light pail or a heavy pail? If the pail was already there, who'd taken it there and why was it waiting for them? Now did poor Jack fall down before, while or after getting some water? And where was this water? At the top of the hill? Somewhere else? When we're told that he broke his crown, what kind of crown are we talking about? Was it a sign of rank? Was it that he broke his forehead? Was it that he broke a repaired tooth? And afterwards, what was it that made Jill tumble? How far did she tumble? Oh, and by the way, did either of them bring any water back from this journey?
The answers to many of the questions that I've just asked are what we call context information, both civil and criminal litigators understand the need to set the scene, to create a context within which the other admissible evidence is then placed. Please note that just as you're listening to or watching videos of the Jack and Nursery rhyme uh, provided a context to interpret the words of that rhyme, so it follows that if as a litigator you fail to introduce the necessary context evidence, then you must assume that the decision makers will find that context from elsewhere, whether it's subconscious or conscious. So what we have just demonstrated using a very old nursery rhyme is that if you fail to look at the entirety of a situation if you limit yourself to whatever words somebody else has chosen to write down to describe a situation, you have only yourself to blame if the decision-maker goes off on an unexpected tangent in interpreting the evidence that you choose to put before them. So as a litigator, as an advocate, you must pay close attention to context. And having done that, that is, determined what your context will be and looking at the evidence that a particular witness has to offer. You'll combine that information to decide what topics you need to follow with Jack and with Jill and any third parties as you interview them to get an accurate and adequate story of Jack and Jill's climbing up the hill. Here are some topics that might guide you and any such witness during an interview. What is the nature of the relationship between Jack and Jill? What was the need for water? What was the source of the water? What were the travelling conditions, place, weather, time of day, any gear they took with them? Were they under any threat or inducement? Why did Jack fall down? What happened to him? Why did Jill tumble? What happened to her? Did they get any water? And finally, what were the consequences to each of them of this trip? And remember that back in the first episode, I pointed out that there might be civil or criminal consequences arising out of what's described in that rhyme. As a guideline to which we will be referring in future episodes, you can think about your case preparation in the following way. We want to see what our opponent is blind to, to hear what our opponent is deaf to, to feel what our opponent is oblivious to. And as an advocate, what we're looking for is how do we do that and do it well? It's to that question that we will return in Episode 7. Bye for now.